don't give it like a the podcast platform of the Phenomenalist by Leopold Lambert. Today, militarization of territorial planning in Cold War USA with Joseph Masco. Hello everyone, today my guest is uh, Joe Masco, who's, uh, who works at the Department of Anthropology at the University of Chicago, uh, and, uh, and the author of a few books, uh, and about some of them we're going to talk about today. Uh, hello Joe. Hello. Uh, maybe to begin this conversation, uh, we could start by talking about uh, this book that will be published uh, pretty soon in, in November called The Theater of Operations. Uh, would you mind introducing it, introducing it to us? Sure. So The Theater of Operations um, is subtitled National Security Affect from the Cold War to the War on Terror and its project is to provide some historical depth to basically how the U.S. security apparatus builds itself and particularly its reliance on panic as a mechanism for creating new infrastructures uh, for securitization, militarization, and control. And it's, um, it was provoked by the particular way in which the start of the war on terror in 2001 under the Bush administration was constituted as a radically new endeavor. Uh, if you were uh, in the U.S. at the time, one of the ways in which uh, an, an expansive new uh, investment in the security state was achieved but was by saying that there was a new kind of danger requiring a new kind of state to be built to, to fight it. And uh, the newness was one of the chief mechanisms by which the political campaign around the war on terror um, after uh, the attacks in, on September 11th were, was achieved. And I had spent the prior uh, 10 years working on a book on nuclear security in the U.S., uh, focused on the um, history of uh, Los Alamos National Laboratory, um, the Manhattan Project, and what came afterwards. And what struck me immediately uh, in the 2001 moment was that uh, almost every proposal that was being um, advocated by this new counterterror state actually had a deep history, and it was connected to Cold War logics, uh, Cold War-era desires that the military state had that it uh, either didn't achieve or was um, managed uh, uh, politically uh, around. And uh, so I, I wanted to write a project that basically um, would communicate to the reader that the post-1945 um, security apparatus in the U.S. was a quite revolutionary uh, state apparatus and that the uh, development of the Cold War state, particularly with its reliance on fear and terror as coordinating principles for uh, security in the U.S., particularly dealing with nuclear danger, were being transformed in 2001 to deal with uh, what was being crafted as a counter-terror 
uh, problem and that a new state was emerging, but based on these very old principles. And so each chapter of the book is an effort to show some of the genealogies around how uh, affect is managed in the U.S., the uh, politics of how a public is mobilized to uh, accept new forms of militarization, and then crucially how that public mobilization enables the building of new state infrastructures, new military infrastructures in particular, and uh, the kind of uh, expansive new investments in, uh, in war and technologies of war. Uh, well, this is perfect because that's uh, pretty much uh, what we're going to talk about today uh, and uh, maybe insist uh, a little bit more of, um, of uh, this uh, historical uh, period of, their, of, of the Cold War and their, the way, the, way uh, the American society was um, uh, living with this uh, uh, emotional management that you're, you're talking about in regarding their, their potential threat of a, of a nuclear attack and um, and well their, the connection with what's happening today will be uh, maybe sometimes implicit and sometimes we'll try to exp- explicit explicitize it as well um, but so this conversation will mostly uh, develops itself around um, uh, a chapter you've wrote for uh, the uh, and Laura Stoller's book uh, *Imperial Debris*, um, in which we we already had um, uh, one uh, yeah one contributor, Gaston Gordillo, in the in the program, and um, and this text is called *Survival Is Your Business* in quotes, engineering engineering ruins and affect in nuclear America, um, so. Uh, in in the very beginning of this essay, you you describe this uh, emotional management of uh, uh, of the the U.S. administration um, upon the American population that should be living in a sort of emotional dosage of fear but not terror because <laughs> if terror then there is no need for survival so there's not a, a sort of population uh, will to, to actually uh, uh, construct this defense but so to live in fear and obviously we can already see the, the connection with what's happening uh, in, in, the, in our era now uh, but could you, could you maybe tell us more a little bit more uh, about this um, uh, this emotional management, please? Yeah, certainly. Yeah, I think it's um, the real achievement of the nuclear age in the United States that it's been um, underappreciated the way in which the constitution of a kind of permanent existential threat to the country has been a core uh, foundational structure in American politics basically since 1945. And this has many different forms, and it has many different outcomes. One outcome has been 
you know, the, uh, the building of a kind of permanent wartime apparatus. But the way in which that establishment of a national security state, which is a very different kind of, of security state than has ever existed before, um, permanently mobilized, um, always trying to expand its capacities, thinking globally, um, not necessarily ever imagining the war will end, but will continue uh, forever in time under under different different kinds of uh, conditions. Um, that that uh, approach to the future, in a sense, um, really has its origins in the kind of post nineteen forty five decision to embrace uh, the bomb as an organizing principle in American society. But before that built apparatus could really be achieved, there was a uh, explicit program to teach American citizens to live in the nuclear age in a particular way. And it's hard for uh, folks of our generation today to, to imagine a moment in which the state um, explicitly tries to communicate to its citizens what a technological revolution is and tries to craft not only their understanding of what a technology is, a brand new technology that was invented in 1945, but also to create a new um, cultural and emotional relationship to how that technology is changing the world and changing an orientation towards the future in particular. So um, Guy Oakes, who wrote a terrific book in the early 90s called The Imaginary War, was one of the first people to um, really uh, get into the detailed history of what uh, Americans remember as the civil defense campaign of the 1950s, uh, which for later generations, it's usually the topic of a lot of parody and humor. This is the, the kind of duck and cover moment that is so absurd when you look at uh, the films and the educational materials around it because it inevitably asks... Uh, viewers and citizens to naturalize a completely impossible situation. The idea that uh, an apocalyptic strike could happen any moment of the day and suggest that um, just by uh, kind of learning to cope with it internally, that that would somehow be a way to manage the possibility of nuclear conflict and nuclear war. So what, what Oakes and other kind of historians of that civil defense moment um, really started to show uh, really kind of at the end of the Cold War, this is a kind of discourse that emerges kind of in the post-Cold War moment, is that um, the state was quite explicitly involved in an emotional management campaign to teach American citizens to fear the bomb in a very particular way and then to use that fear as the basis for mobilizing them as cold warriors and um, to create a consensus view of fighting a, a kind of uh, imaginary war with the Soviet Union as a kind of permanent structure in American life. And this had many different uh, state projects. Some of the ones that, that might be interested for, you, for your listeners has to do with um, incredible kind of civil defense exercises that, um, in which the entire uh, country... Uh, pretty much every year from the early 1950s to the early 1960s would have a designated month in which um, the uh, nuclear attack on the U.S. was acted out in various cities and municipal governments with a national campaign around it to kind of coordinate uh, 
agencies, government offices, and citizen responses. So this is the kind of moment in which most of our understandings and tropes around nuclear weapons and nuclear fear are crafted in the United States. And partly what I wanted to do in the chapter was think about not only how explicit the kind of crafting of a psychological space and an emotional space in relationship to the bomb was in that historical moment, but also to think about its legacies. And so the, the chapter spends a lot of time thinking with specific, um, very large-scale uh, exercises and drills in which uh, citizens were asked to contemplate the destruction of their own communities and then asked to kind of uh, approach that as an avenue for nation-building. So it's a very perverse new kind of nation building in which imagining the end of your community becomes the basis for a new kind of community. And that was the, the start of, a I think, a new state understanding of how to interact with citizens, how to manage them through certain kinds of fears. And it's the start of really what uh, came to be known as a kind of Cold War consensus in American politics. And the Cold War consensus has three basic elements. One, nuclear fear, uh, the fear of a con uh, nuclear confrontation with the Soviet Union. Uh, capitalism <laughs> as an engine, and that's also very much tied to the build-out of a new kind of state, new industries, uh, new kind of uh, consumer culture. And also this idea of a kind of permanent militarization the idea that these structures can go on indefinitely, that it, we're not dealing with episodic wartime logics anymore, but that the sets of uh, domestic policies and international relations that usually come only during the height of wartime would now be uh, naturalized as just the basis for everyday American life. So. One of the important aspects, I think, of the first decade of the nuclear age in the United States is this very explicit effort to um, mobilize the entire American public to think about the end of the nation and then use that particular circuit, uh, a set of images of nuclear destruction and its affective coordinates, to then militarize the public to support a set of uh, policies and uh, institutions that at their core are radically undemocratic. Mm -hmm. And to use um, fear in particular as a, as a mechanism of uh, kind of mobilization and social control. You asked um, about the particular relationship between fear and terror and this is um, this would connect us to our current moment in which we're under the conditions of a war on terror in the United States and have been since 2001, even though we hear that phrase used less and less from the Obama administration, but basically the entire policy apparatus around it that was built after 2001 is still in place. So one question that I was quite um, interested in researching the historical coordinates of was why is it possible to declare war on an emotion? It's a very strange concept to declare war on terror. And of course, it's hard to imagine a world in which terror is impossible, in which it would be impossible to feel it, impossible to experience it in some way. And yet, if you, if you take it quite literally, this is what the promise of, of a war on terror is. It's to eliminate the possibility of being terrorized. 
Um, my take on this is that this is an evolution, uh, a multi-generational evolution of these logics that start in the early Cold War moment, in which nuclear fear was so spectacularly useful in building a particular kind of state form uh, that in 2001 it became the immediate um, opportunity for a renewal of the uh, national security state, uh, new expansion, and so I spent quite a bit of time thinking about how the early Cold War years were structured in relationship to the early War on Terror years. And there are quite a few kind of direct, almost citational moments in terms of the mounting of large-scale public education campaigns devoted not to really informing the public, but to creating uh, certain uh, qualities of fear and terror, um, calls for expansive new industries to secure different aspects of everyday life, uh, new forms of, um, of global military uh, expansion with the claim that that would protect domestic populations. And so in both cases, I've been interested in how the declaration of a kind of new geopolitics, a Cold War or a war on terror, has also constituted a new domestic politics in the United States. And um, because my training is in the uh, science studies and in anthropology, I've been very interested in how these large-scale state projects remake American identity and become a, a kind of new form of self-fashioning and uh, a way of managing the interior life of, uh, of American citizens. Well, that's something that I exactly want to talk about, so that's great. Uh, maybe to give a, a, a useful reference to the listeners here, when you were talking about their, the, the mock attacks and, uh, and uh, the, the drills every, every year in uh, American uh, uh, towns and cities, um, uh, that made me think of uh, a, a very, a very uh, provocative and interesting work that's been done around around that, but in the UK by uh, Peter Watkins, the, the mm -hmm. war the war game, yeah. and how how there is this tension because uh, that is obviously explained in the t expressed in the title of the, the war game. Um, this uh, this tension between between all those. Uh, Administratively prepared uh, assignments, uh, exercise, sorry, uh, and um, and uh, the actual reality of their of of of, of a potential attack. Um, <clears throat> but moving on to the very last thing you've been talking about, which is uh, the management of uh, of uh, interior lives of uh, the American society, I think I am uh, I was very interested and looking forward to uh, put our our conversation in relation to um, another uh, conversation I had for Archipelago with uh, Olivia Anne about the suburban house as a, as a very uh, telling uh, uh, object, so to speak, and suburbia in general, and uh, I'm, I'm not going to restart again this counter-history of, of, of suburbia that uh, I explained back then in, in, in how this was very much a part of a of a territorial strategy during the Cold War in how the suburbia appeared. Uh, but so 
with that with with that in mind that there is another conversation about it and and uh, and here we can we can move forward in it and how um, how this management of fear and this uh, continuous organization of uh, American society's life ha has a um, very strong uh, consequences in terms of uh, normative processes mm -hmm. and you talk about it a little bit in the, in the chapter I was referring earlier in how <clears throat> sorry for example how the, uh, uh, the how things would I mean all the imaginary that would be conveyed through this those campaigns would would always go with uh, uh, either either mannequins or either mm -hmm. uh, pictorial representation of uh, what would be a typical American family, and uh, which is obviously a very heteronormative family, and the genders are very very well established. And that's exactly what we're talking about with uh, Olivia Han, and and so so I'm I'm interested in this aspect of things. You I mean uh, you you say that uh, there's. Uh, there is a repartition of the roles in a potential uh, in a potential attack mm -hmm. like that. So uh, the the wife would have to think of what of, of the food aspect. The the husband would have to think of the shelter aspect. And mm -hmm. so uh, even through uh, the preparation of a crisis of a crisis situation, there are still very much the normative processes at work in in that matter. So could you could you talk about that? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so, the scope of kind of the nuclear revolution in the U.S. is really hard to account for because it transforms so many of uh, America's big institutions. But one of the very early understandings, uh, and I'm talking about the early 1950s, and particularly the shift from atomic weapons to thermonuclear weapons, much much higher yield weapons, much more destructive was that um, cities were basically defenseless and that the concentration that had been going on for the previous decades as people moved from rural locations in the U.S. to concentrate ever more in, in cities and urban uh, centers, that that was constituting a new, kind of, uh, a new kind of risk in the nuclear age. And so uh, the formal project... Um, from basically 1950 on is to redesign, redesign urban spaces um, so that uh, there would be less risk of the entire country collapsing under a nuclear crisis. And this took many forms. There was an effort to redistribute industrial um, uh, uh, forms outside of urban centers. And so this takes whole series of jobs away from <laughs> the center of cities and moves them to the periphery. But there's also the suburbanization. So there starts to be a real emphasis on moving domestic um, life away from the city into the suburbs with a concurrent building out of highway systems to support all this. The highway systems were initially also justified as part of nuclear defense. It would be a way for people to evacuate cities. They could be used as uh, for planes in terms of airstrips and so on. So you start to have this way in which nuclear planning becomes a way of re-engineering American society. And because it is always connected to a kind of 
totalizing existential threat, it becomes a thing that's very useful for lots of different kinds of state and corporate agents to connect themselves to, to do all sorts of different kinds of things. So it's really quite a revolutionary era in American society in which the bomb is really a kind of coordinating logic for um, not only organizing industry and academic um, creativity with military purposes, as we saw like with the Manhattan Project, which took people out of universities and consolidated them uh, for classified military research and built whole new industries out of that, but also for literally rebuilding the kind of built landscape of, of cities and the organization of how people move in the, in the country in terms of transportation networks. And this is also the moment that's going to start the kind of research for doing distributed communication, network communication. It's the era that's starting to try to figure out how to maintain communications in an ultimate crisis. And this is the, the set of research projects that ultimately produce what we call the internet now, which is um, a way of constantly pointing towards how many of the big infrastructures that we rely on in terms of everyday life, whether it's highways or the internet, uh, the suburbs, and so on, are tied in their organization now to nuclear planning. Uh, a couple of generations ago, and and, and I mean, you, you earlier you were you were citing those three uh, aspects of Cold War America, which was uh, one, the fear of the bomb, two, capitalism, and three, the militarization. I think I think the, this infrastructure of the highway is particularly uh, uh, incredibly expressive in 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 fitting those three aspects of things because. Uh, because of what you were describing, the fact that uh, the army can uh, at, at times uh, use it as like to land planes and to, to transport troops very quickly and to, um, to redistribute resources on territory. And uh, back then I had referenced uh, Peter Gallison's text, uh, <laughs> War Against the Center, that, exactly. that, that's very expressive, that's very explanatory about that. But there's also capitalism in there and, and how the 1949 Highway Highway Act by the Eisenhower administration followed their their followed their the cable car conspiracy in in the in the center of the cities That's right. of uh, General Motors and Standard Oil uh, California Standard Oil being being recognized guilty of conspiracy for having pretty much bought every cable car of the country to dispense of them and, and develop their their, their right. car industry. And having to pay something like ten thousand dollars for being guilty of this conspiracy—I mean, something ridiculous like that—but yeah. so that's where also this is highly part of the capitalism uh, ideology as well. Yeah, and it, and it, you can't say too much about it in terms of the organizational structure of American life from the mid twentieth century on. That these things really become fused, um, and uh, in a really uh, direct way. One place we can see this, to go back to the, the kind of start of your question, would be um, in one of the largest of the civil defense exercises in the mid-1950s, which I talk about in the article. Uh, it was known as Operation Q, mm-hmm. and this was something that was um, had about a nine-month buildup in the press with like regular news accounts getting ready for this, this large-scale exercise. 
the it had components that were distributed across the United States in different um, cities and towns, but the center of it was a effort in at the Nevada test site uh, in 1955 to build a facsimile American suburb, complete with a variety of different kinds of uh, housing styles of the kinds that were actually now being produced in mass around the country. They were stocked with uh, all the consumer goods that one would dream about having in a home, brand new uh, appliances and technologies, and then also populated with mannequins. And a a nuclear bomb was detonated uh, live on TV for a viewing audience of of the nation that was tuned in to actually see what it would be like for an American community to be blown up. And there's huge... Uh, kind of ideological coordinates to this uh, test that could be unpacked. Uh, The focus on the suburbs, the gender coding of the depiction of family life in the suburbs, the racialization. Um, But connected to it, there were also a set of observers that were invited to come and witness the test live just as the rest of the American population was tuning into this, this relatively new technology TV to watch a live, a live nuclear detonation and its effects on the community. And what was interesting, interesting in doing the research on who was invited to uh, come and witness the tests as a citizen was that they were drawn from all sorts of small towns around the United States, and part of their experience of that nuclear test was that they laid in trenches and uh, a mile or so, two miles away from what was a very small nuclear test, but a very cinematically engineered one. Um, and they spent a lot of time um, rehearsing how to evacuate their, their trenches. And there were a series of um, kind of studies done in this moment that were done not only on citizens, but also on soldiers, how um, that were concerned with asking how just witnessing a nuclear detonation would affect somebody cognitively. And so these were exercises designed to see if witnessing something that was on that scale, that terrifically violent, unprecedentedly violent, um, what that would do to basically the nervous system of the viewer. And uh, so they did timed drills to see if you know people could run still and think afterwards. And that part of Operation Q and a related set of experiments were very much involved in what I talk about as calibrating the nuclear logic and its effect on the individual. And this calibration was um, designed to do uh, some important work, first to uh, pedagogically train citizens to respond in a particular way and to do it ultimately in an almost kind of autonomic way. So you'd have through constant drilling and repetition a emergency response, you know, uh, that if you saw something that looked like a nuclear strike of some kind, you'd have a set of things built into your into your nervous system that you would just do. But the larger project was to f- try to manage nuclear fear so that it didn't become nuclear terror. And in the early Cold War moment, Um, They had a, with the work of social scientists, psychologists, huge uh, connections to the advertising industry. Um, So this was part of what uh, the Federal Civil Defense Agency at the time called the largest propaganda effort in American history. And it 
involved every kind of media, radio, television, films, lots of uh, written material, and so on. And what they were trying to do was mobilize the public through images of nuclear destruction, but keep them um, in this tense relationship between fear and terror, afraid of the bomb and thus treating it as something that was of utmost seriousness that needed to be a coordinating principle for everyday life, but not so terrified of it that they would um, basically be unable to um, operate in everyday life. And so what I find really fascinating about this early moment is there's a notion of uh, using fear as a, as a kind of management strategy for the population that it could backfire, that you could, you could, you could terrorize a population and lose the possibility of consensus for state activities, that people could become abject, they could give up, they could resist. And in fact, that's what happens. By the end of the 1950s, after a decade of um, duck and cover drills, civil defense drills, escalating nuclear uh, rhetoric with the Soviet Union, and remember, constant nuclear tests going off all around the world, uh, you know, both from the U.S. and the Soviet side in the 1950s, um, there is a, a literal kind of um, moment in which the nuclear narrative escapes the control of the state. And the, the way that happens is uh, due mostly to the work of um, activists, and particularly activist scientists, who start to be concerned about the effects of atmospheric fallout from nuclear tests being so devastating uh, environmentally that just the test program, not even nuclear war itself, but just the act of building the bomb, testing it, creating all these different iterations of it, was potentially threatening the genetic stability of all life on Earth, but they focused particularly on American uh, children as the way to uh, push back on uh, the Cold War state apparatus. And that ultimately led to the 1963 Limited Test Ban Treaty, which removed nuclear testing from the atmosphere and put it underground. And in other work I talk about that is stabilizing the experimental form for nuclear weapon science for the next you know, 30, 40 years. But, um, but it's an interesting moment because it's, it's one way you can talk about the start of the environmental movement, uh, the peace movement, and because all of these things also have to do with the complex relationships between what's happening in cities and suburbs, it's also, there's questions about um, the rise of uh, gender, race, ethnicity, and social justice movements of every kind. There's a set of linkages, a kind of counter-revolution that happens in the U.S. that is uh, quite formative of all the large-scale kind of social protest movements that started in the late 1950s and, and carry through the, the next few decades. So it's, it, has, it has lots of different effects, this, uh, this early uh, emotional management campaign. But for our purposes today, I think it also created a set of um, concepts and resources to the security state for how it can relate to, to citizens. And if you were to go back to the first few months after uh, the September 2001 uh, attacks on uh, Washington and New York, which 
I would say, triggered and were understood by the American public largely through this long legacy of civil defense planning in which New York and Washington, D.C. had been destroyed repetitively by the security state as part of the civil defense campaigns for generations and were also um, conditioned by the Hollywood version of the civil defense campaign, which you know, the, uh, the Hollywood blockbuster, summer blockbuster with special effects film has largely been devoted to destroying New York every year for the last 20, 30 years. And so there's this way in which a set of images that came out of that initial civil defense campaign of the 1950s become really deeply installed in American culture and become one way of thinking about crisis, disaster, external threat, existential danger. And those become crafted over and over again through um, in different idioms and in different ways. And I think very much informed how the American public experienced actual real violence in September 2001, but also um, were then the vehicles for a new kind of state mobilization um, and the build-out of uh, counter-terror apparatus, which was, you know, to, to put it very simply, an effort to um, rebuild and uh, renew the American security state uh, for a new century with the idea that, um, you know, the, the, the build-out of a counter-terror apparatus would be the vehicle for American power for the next, the next century, in a way. And so you see, um, coming out of that moment, the creation of whole new security disciplines, uh, cybersecurity, homeland security, biosecurity. These are um, whole new ways of uh, crafting the problem of external existential danger and building an apparatus to combat it in perpetuity. And that script is something that has played out um, over and over again. And, it's a very specifically American way of building a security apparatus. And in each case, I think it has pretty profound implications for a democratic process in the US. Because if you're operating under conditions of um, fear, let alone terror, um, these are not moments uh, that are um, supporting of democratic deliberations, mm -hmm. transparency, consensus building, and so on. Um, so there, there's another aspect of, um, of uh, your research that I would like to address that actually is not, uh, might uh, drift a little bit apart from the, this original chapter I was talking about, but uh, that uh, certainly addresses um, the architectural dimension of, of, of all that, and you, 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 mentioned there, you mentioned it a little bit in there. In the Operation Q, and uh, when you when you look at on YouTube at their at their, at their mm -hmm. video back then, they explain what which material might resist more to yeah. which other which building material. So, how how would your house sh how should your house be built, and uh, all, all these kind of things. But um, uh, so, uh, I mean, I was referencing earlier the the suburban house as a as a something that doesn't quite shows um, the entire militarized infrastructure that's hidden behind this very uh, uh, what became the archetypical vision of the house almost mm -hmm. in the US uh, but there is there is an architecture that particularly uh, reveals this militarization which is uh, the, 
the twin the twin brother of of this uh, of this little suburban house, which is the, the shelter, the, the bomb shelter, mm-hmm. and you you talk about that in a, in another uh, article called uh, "Life Underground: Building the Bunker Society." Um, and so, if we put that in the in a historical context, with uh, for example the the London shelters during the Second World War, uh, during the Blitz, where uh, people would have to regularly uh, uh, go take shelter to against the, the bombs coming from the from the German army. Um, uh, it's interesting to see how in London there those shelters were very much. Uh, I mean. Also because of their also because of their of their urban form of London itself, but I mean that everything is very much related. Uh, those shelters were very much collective and, and pu- yeah. publicly uh, publicly uh, uh, engineered, whereas uh, the bunkers of the uh, the the shelters of their of their Cold War were very much individualized and 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 uh, and. Uh, and uh, to some degree, uh, because of that, also linked linked uh, to uh, sort of uh, uh, consumption and capitalism uh, 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 system. Um, and it, it's interesting how so very much privatized for that matter. And it, it interests me very much in my own in my own research in the fact that. Uh, I, I usually say when you when you create a, when you create a set of walls you you, you create uh, you create the conditions of access to the, to, yeah. to the inside of those of those walls so uh, in the case of private property uh, you have people who have access people who don't have access so there's a social violence in that but so the shelter crystallized that in a, in a, in an even more extreme fashion because um, uh, I mean, you know, it brings us back to all those films of post-apocalyptic films where uh, uh, any form of solidarity has absolutely disappeared, and like those who uh, right. those who have shelters uh, have to have to sometimes shoot the others that tries to seek shelter. So there is there is this social violence of private property and and and, and inherent quasi inherent to architecture. That is that is expressed in the most extreme fashion here, since uh, the shelter is need, is needed in a pretty crucial situation. Could, right. could you address that? Yeah, absolutely. And I and I think uh, you know your mention of the the kind of uh, fundamental antisocial narrative in the uh, the genre of apocalyptic cinema, particularly in the U.S., is really an index of precisely how perverse uh, this. Uh, this form of nation building is that mm-hmm. it requires the uh, the kind of consideration of the complete end of sociability and the idea of a kind of militarizing of the self and some of those um, narratives and forms also have these these really deep genealogies in the U.S. going back to ideas about the frontier, the ideas about um, uh, perseverance and self dependence, and so there's there's a set of ideas about violence and regeneration through violence that scholars like uh, Richard Slotkin have written about in great detail about the 19th century that the early Cold War period pick up and try to rework and uh, with an effort to uh, creating a society that has those same attributes of kind of frontier America but now um, recast for the nuclear age. But the fundamental, there's a fundamental problem in the middle of it, which is just that the, the kind of violence that is nuclear war 
is of such a magnitude that it completely overwhelms any kind of narrative. Uh, many theorists have talked about it as the unrepresentable because it, uh, it deals with uh, a kind of uh, scale of destruction that can't actually be captured either on through text or film or so on. Um, and so there's, there's a whole set of interesting kind of uh, and important theoretical questions about what the work of representation of the end of the world is uh, after 1945. And uh, I think one version of it in, in the United States, particularly coming through official channels, has been trying to craft and contain the image of the end of the country so that it can do certain kinds of political work in the moment. The early decision um, to advise Americans to build shelters, to imagine a life underground waiting out the effect of, of nuclear war was a kind of classic example of a manipulation of the public. Uh, there was a report in 1957 that starts as a classified report and bits of it get leaked to um, the press called the Gaither Report, which had its official purpose was to consider civil defense, how to defend the country in case of nuclear war, and uh, what kind of emergency measures might be important to protect the, the population. So in a sense, this is like basic governmentality. You've got a risk to your domestic population. How do you do good governance around protecting it? But the immediate uh, problem and for some opportunity is that uh, the nuclear danger is too big. You can't actually protect yourself from nuclear war. It's, uh, the, the, there is no kind of defense uh, in the midst of that kind of violence. So um, what the Gator Committee did, and this was part of uh, an effort to expand some of the corporate relations that you were talking about, was start to advocate for an emergency crash program for building a, an elaborate defense system in the U.S. that would involve every member of the public in some kind of bunker politics, in a way. And uh, when... Uh, shock of Sputnik happened the next year, this was amplified into a call for a wholesale expansion of the American military apparatus. So linked to the creation of a new narrative to building a bunker society was also a, uh, a, a parallel effort to build uh, at that moment what became known as the triad in American defense, which was that you needed not only nuclear bombs on planes, but you needed intercontinental missiles, and you needed bombs on submarines. And so what you have here is the build-out of just a gigantic apparatus of uh, nuclear architecture that in terms of the triad is a global structure, and much of it is buried underground. The missile silos are buried underground, the submarines are under the ocean and invisible, and therefore can't be uh, targeted, so to speak. Uh, the planes are going to be always in the air, uh, armed with nuclear weapons, and uh, you know, for uh, decades, this is how the U.S. defended itself with pilots with uh, with nuclear weapons, always uh, always circling the Soviet Union, um, waiting for their either their orders to return home or to attack, and so you have this incredible ratcheting up of infrastructures which shorten the time frame on a conflict 
from something that would have been weeks and days to increasingly hours and minutes. And so the, the contracting of the notion of danger from something that you could imagine seeing coming uh, through some kind of intense international conflict to something that was just installed in the basic uh, qualities of everyday life. You know, the minutes of warning that one would have before nuclear uh, uh, war strike was also this extraordinary um, kind of space for public engineering, for engineering American institutions, um, relationships to the state. And the, the, the fallout shelter uh, moment is a, a really important um, illustration of the power of the emotional management campaign because the the official invitation of the state at that moment to citizens was you're going to live a big part of your life underground and what's happening above ground is you know an irradiated scorched earth reality um, and so you had in city spaces the building out of some scale of um, fallout shelter uh, architecture um, but you also had um, you know a whole new industry kind of growing uh, that would um, you know invite people that owned homes to uh, to build part of their house underground and the formal technical studies of whether these things would actually help you survive a nuclear conflict um, started to show very quickly that these were um, completely nonsensical that the kind of violence that is nuclear war would not allow people in shelters to uh, survive on the scale that a national shelter program suggested it would. But you still have, and to this day you have, if you look across, say, public schools that were built in the mid-20th century, um, lots of uh, urban spaces, um, the relationship to highways we already mentioned, but there is this whole kind of infrastructure for trying to withstand nuclear war that is just built in now to the, the, the built landscape of the country, and you still see signs of it um, in many respects. Now, there's a, a historical review of the civil defense era, which starts to kind of decline in the mid-1960s, which points out that the scale of what was built in terms of uh, bunkers in the U.S. was never enough to protect the entire population, even under the, the terms of the times. And therefore, uh, there's a kind of uh, way of reading the, the civil defense uh, bunker uh, crusade as a failure. And I would say that it actually did quite the opposite if you take it from the point of view of an emotional management campaign, it forced Americans to go ever deeper into nuclear crisis at the level of their imagination and to start thinking about how they would take care of their family, how they would uh, navigate spaces of every kind from being in a city to being in the countryside to being in suburbs and to be constantly in, um, planning for dealing with nuclear crisis. So I would say that the true bunker that got built was not the concrete bunker that people could go into, although there were lots of those as well. It was the bunker of the imagination, mm -hmm. that there was an invitation to uh, inhabit a particular concept of reality that was nuclearized through and through. And the, 
the large-scale civil defense exercises and the, uh, the fallout shelter campaign were, were linked in crucial ways of establishing that in American society. And the way you can find it today is by talking to anyone of a generation that was in public schools from 1945 to basically 1990, till the end of the Cold War. And if you say a few code words to them, uh, you know, about the bomb, about civil defense, you say duck and cover, everybody in America has a story about their relationship to those concepts and at what point in their life they rehearsed, were terrified, or protested some aspect of that structure. And so uh, it was a highly successful way of nationalizing a particular kind of technological danger and building uh, a society around it, even if in formal technical terms it didn't create the, uh, the uniform infrastructure of uh, a kind of bunker society. Well, I think we're, we're pretty much reaching the, the end of this conversation, but uh, I... Uh, uh, listening to you, I was, I was, I was thinking that maybe one thing that uh, highly differentiates um, uh, this um, this fear uh, 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 that was atmospheric in during the Cold War and the one that uh, the one that uh, we've been experiencing in those last uh, thirteen years is um, is that maybe the the fear of the bomb was very much uh, coming from uh, let's say the, the sky quite literally. And whereas, whereas there, there, the fear that is being uh, administrated uh, right now is actually uh, a, f- a very corporal fear, and there's always a, the, the social otherness that that needs to be that that could become the threat, and therefore it creates it creates at a societal level it creates a, mm-hmm. another form of violence in that terms. But I mean, when listening to you and when reading your work, I think the 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 things that I cannot escape from thinking is that so much resources and so much intelligence is put into uh, into something like defense when you would think that if, if that much of resources and intelligence were placed into maybe finding agreements, <laughs> geopolitical <laughs> agreements, yeah. That that would quite work as well yeah. because it's it's we're talking about so much uh, so much means again so yeah. uh, it's it's quite interesting as well in the imaginary how how uh, the threat is always seems always uh, 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 inevitable like if it was not dependent on actually uh, politics of things so um, but uh, Joe thank you so much for taking the time to describe uh, this work uh, today and uh, and uh, obviously. Uh, Many, many, many of us will uh, wait uh, until November to <laughs> to see this new book, The Theater of Operations. Uh, thank you very much. Thank you very much. <laughs>